On this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, we are joined by Anthony Michael Hall, who has a new movie called The Class, which bears more than a passing resemblance to The Breakfast Club, plus a hilarious Danny DeVito story and an update on trying to get Sue to watch House of the Dragon. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or at stevemason.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani. Call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Everybody and welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinsky. Got a great guest today, Anthony Michael Hall, uh, who I grew up watching in movies like uh, Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles. So I'm excited about that. Sue, what's going on with you? Well, um, just trying to uh, bear this horrible heat. Isn't it awful? It's crazy. It, it was like 105. Yeah. No, it's insane. We went to uh, Juan, got a new car. We went to a dealership in Glendale. And oh my God, it was so friggin' hot on Sunday. Sunday, I guess, was the hottest of the days. Uh, Labor Day, not quite as bad, but Sunday was just brutal. Yeah, I was actually on a boat yesterday, which was unbelievably great. A yacht? No, it was not a yacht, but it was a big boat. It was like a 40-something foot. Nice, nice. Um, Friend of uh, Tom and I. And uh, we go out on his boat quite quite frequently, and um, yeah, it was great. So we uh, we met them in Huntington Beach where they live, and then we went through the Huntington Harbor, and then we actually ended up back in Long Beach, docked, and then uh, went out to lunch, and then took the ride back. Nice, nice. Uh, I went to the USC game on Saturday at the Coliseum. It was so fucking hot. It was unbelievable. And, and what time was the game? What time did the game start? Three uh, thirty. Yeah, right in the middle of the heat. You know what I'm saying? And so people said, well, you should sit on this side of the stadium or that side of the stadium. You won't be in the sun. As it turns out, the entire stadium is completely in the sun. Like there is nowhere to hide. It was so friggin' hot. Uh, just about as hot as USC's offense, which racked up a big day against Rice. <laughs> nice segue. Yes. Um, now, have they ever canceled a game because of heat? Because it's no. so dangerous. Well, I mean, they never have. I mean, they get those fans and all that stuff, and yeah. guys take IVs at halftime, uh, I'm assuming. And But no, I mean, you know, it's just like extreme cold. They play in extreme heat, too. Right, right. Yeah. Anyway, so I I, um, I read something that was kind of fun. Um, Danny DeVito shared this really, really hilarious story about how the writers of uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia pranked him with um, a, an episode of what his character was going to go through. Okay. So um, it turns out that uh, it was a story where he was um, going to get like brutally raped in prison. What? Yes. <laughs> You're kidding right? me. No. So he's reading the script. 
And he's like, what the hell? And he said that it was so horrible that he actually called his lawyer to complain about really? it. Really? And, uh, and basically it said, you know, you know, he was going to pick up a hooker and, and he gets busted and he gets <laughs> raped in jail in the shower <laughs> and they throw him in lockup and he gets raped by everybody. Even the cops rape him and they go back to the bar and then, um, Frank would get raped again. And then, um, <laughs> and then he's lying on the ground and, uh, as he's being raped, a guy leans in and says, uh, April Fool's, bitch. And then he realized that it was a joke. It was April Fool's Day. <laughs> it's such a funny story. How oh, hilarious man. is that? Yeah, yeah. You know, there have been times where I've been working on shows and the editors and I would um, wanted to just do a prank cut of an episode. Um, you know, like a, maybe like the first cut yeah, to give right. to the produce, you know, to give to the executive producers, and uh, just to just just to fuck with them and see what their reaction would be. <laughs> and uh, we we never did it, but but sometimes we would put like when we would be like on onlining the show and doing the audio. Uh, one of the guys who was like head of post, um, we would put in like subtle things that were wrong just to see if he could catch it, you know, cause you have to catch it before, you know, it's going to be locked and aired. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we would have changed it of course, but we just wanted to see like, you know, sometimes we'd put like a, like a quick little image of his face that would come on like real quick and then, and then immediately come off. Anyway. So that to me is hysterical. Oh, that's a great story. I never watched Sonny in Philadelphia. I, I know Rob McElhaney from Mythic Quest, which mm-hmm. is really, really good and really funny. Uh, but I, I never watched It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Did you? I watched it the first couple of seasons, actually before Danny DeVito and Ann Archer was in it. She oh, okay. came on. Um, and I wasn't really crazy about their character, so I stopped watching it. Um, but the first couple of seasons, um, it was great. Really, yeah. really funny, funny show. Yeah. Um, so are you watching Game of Dragons? Or I you know, I'm I'm by the way, it's called the House of the Dragon, but right. I'm calling it all variations of this. I've called it Game of Thrones, I've called right. it House of Thrones, I've called it House of the Dragons, right, right. All these things. So, Sue, three episodes in. Are you with me? Steve, knowing me as well as you do, do you really think that I'm watching this show? Well, come on, somebody's gonna come on from the show ultimately. Well, and then you're not going to be caught up, and then you're going to be like, "Oh, I've got to watch eleven episodes of House well, of the Dragon." Well, if to get ready we for this. book somebody who's on the show, I will read up on it, <laughs> and I will watch some episodes. So, what do you have against House of the Dragon? It's, you know what it is? It's just not my thing. Like you watch that, and you know what I'm watching now? What? Bad Sisters. Have you seen that show? Uh, is that it's on? Peacock, I think, right? Or no, it's yeah. on Apple, and it's okay. Sharon Horgan. She was in Catastrophe. It's yeah. her show. It is unbelievable. Is it? So that's that's the difference between. I mean, your taste and my taste for a lot of shows are are pretty much on the same page, and then you venture out and watch Game of Thrones type of shows, and I watch a lot of crime stuff. So that's where we deviate. This show, we have to get people from the show on our show uh, from, and what's the from name of the bad show? sister bad, bad sisters. sisters okay it is it takes place in ireland 
Yeah. And that's all I'll tell you, but it is brilliant. Are the accents really heavy? No, you, you could understand them. Can I? Yeah. Do I have to turn on the subtitles? What are you, 90? My mom and not stepdad Leo have the subtitles on. Oh, no, they would have to. Yeah, they would have to. But they may have to for a regular show. Oh, they have to for young Sheldon. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you need the subtitles on to figure out what the hell is going on. Oh, Uh, Yeah, well, eventually, eventually you're going to find yourself in. I I will watch. Here's the difference between you and me. I will watch Bad Sisters and you won't watch. House of the Dragon. You will, I will act on your recommendation. You will not act on mine. I know what the show is. I just know it's just not my thing. Flying dragons, these period kind of piece. I like, like there are period piece shows that I've, you know, that I've watched. Like, sure. like, like, like the great because right. there's some, it's because it's different and it's actually fun. And, but these type of shows, they're just not my taste. Well, it's disappointing. Sorry disappointing i'm sorry to disappoint you. the guy i work with on the radio john ireland refused 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 and then the last season of game of thrones said okay i'll give it a try raced right through it was ready for the finale really yes yes loved it hated the whole idea of dragons and period and costumes and all that all the stuff to go but just great just great uh the pilot is a great hour of television actually why why don't you just watch the first hour Okay, I'll do yeah, that. Just watch the first hour. See what you think. I'll do that. Okay, good. Uh, last thing I wanted to ask you, and then we'll get Anthony Michael Hall in here. Uh, the, uh, our schedule's a little bit messed up. Uh, normally, we would do like an Emmys preview, but there's no time to do that this time. But I thought we would talk about one category, which I think is unbelievably tough, and it's best actor in a comedy. It's mm-hmm. Jason Sudeikis for Ted mm-hmm. Lasso. Mm-hmm. It is Bill Hader for Barry, and it is Steve Martin and Martin Short for Only Murders in the Building. I don't know who the fifth guy is. It may be Nicholas Holt from uh, from uh, the show you just mentioned, uh, The Great. But wh- who do you like in that category? Sudeikis, Hader, Steve Martin, Martin Short. Hader. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I. You know, I thought the show turned really dark. I mean, Juan and I have this internal discussion. That's not even a comedy anymore. Mm-hmm. And I guess you can make that point. It sort of became a dark comedy. It became Breaking Bad in a lot of ways. It became, you know, he, well, I guess he was bad before he, as he got there. Mm-hmm. He's already bad. But, uh, but yeah, it, it reminds me a lot of that. And next year, Bill Hader is going to direct all the episodes and he wants them to feel like an independent film, which I think would be really cool. So I'm with you on, uh, on Hader. All right. Uh, our guest today has starred in movies like The Breakfast Club, National Lampoon's Vacation, 16 Candles, Edward Scissorhands, All About the Benjamins, Halloween Kills, and more. His latest project is producing and starring in The Class, now open in theaters everywhere and on VOD. Anthony Michael Hall joins us. Anthony, thank you so much for doing this, man. We really appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you. So uh, producing, starring in a movie like The Class has got to be, does it feel like a full circle moment? I mean, you've gone from one of the kids <laughs> from the breakfast club to now an authority figure see, uh, overseeing yeah. troubled kids. Is that one of the reasons why you pursued the project? Yeah. You know what? It is a full circle moment, Steve and Sue. Absolutely. Um, you know, this script came to me a couple of years ago uh, from the writer, director, Nikki Solozzi, and I was immediately just impressed. He did a great job. He kind of took the framework of the breakfast club 
and really took it into a new direction. He really kind of modernized it. Because what you see, when you, if you watch the film, there's, we raise the stakes for all the kids. All their characters are dealing with a wide range of issues. Not like we weren't all those years ago when we were coming up, but to make it really accessible and to make it very modern, I think, for like a millennial and post-millennial generation, we really wanted to, to do that. So it really took me by surprise. I thought the characters are dealing with any wide range of emotions I mean, and issues, you know, from abuse at home to alcoholism to sexuality one of the kids is coming out of the closet another per one of the kids is dealing with a, a life-threatening disease so i think nikki did a beautiful job in terms of raising the stakes for all the characters and this time it's six kids instead of five but he did a great job so i was really just immediately impressed with the material and i thought wow this might be the a great time to do this because it was never in my thinking of course to kind of reimagine or, or, you know, even come close to remaking a John Hughes film. It was never something that I really thought or planned, you know, so it was a really nice surprise how it all came together. So when you're an executive producer, um, how, how involved in you are you with, with every aspect? I'm, because I know you're a musician. So, um, you know, yeah. do you look for music? I mean, I know there's a music supervisor, but tell sure. tell me what your involvement is like. Well, you know, once Nikki and I joined forces, this is the first production from my company, which is Manhattan Films. And, and I've been at this a long time. So I was really excited about that new partnership. And I got to give Nikki credit. He really handpicked all the kids. He really, and, and we had a great casting director as well. So it was very important to him and that we open it up, that it's a much more multi-ethnic cast. It's, um, as I said, the issues that they're dealing with, which I touched on are very real, not like they didn't exist when we were kids, but he really gives them a lot of meat on the bone to, to work with. And so these characters were great. I was also really excited that we were able to get Debbie. So Debbie came in and did a beautiful job. I mean, she's just a natural actress and she was really likable and great in the film. And then, you know, I was helpful a little bit with John Kapalos, who's an actor that appeared in a lot of the, the John Hughes films with me. He was the janitor in the original Breakfast Club. So, you know, it's, I think in terms of your questions too, it's about bringing those elements together, you know, kind of finding the right home for it, finding the right cast, you know, and you're kind of dealing with all the logistic issues. So we were able to partner with Elmhurst University, which is a really great school outside of Chicago and the suburbs. And that became our home. We utilized their campus and one of their faculty buildings. And that was really great. And they were a great partner. And we just had the good fortune of bringing a great cast together. One of the things that I did do, um, Steve and Sue, is that I, I, I suggested to Nick that we have a good week of rehearsal, a solid period where the kids could get to know each other. And that really paid dividends for us because not only did they get to know each other, they really became fast friends, like really bonded as a unit. And that was much more than I could have asked for because when we were kids doing that film, I mean, Molly and I in the original were 16, 17 years old, mm -hmm. but I think Judd, Allie and Emilio were like in their mid or late twenties at the time. I'm joking, but they were in their, in their twenties. <laughs> <laughs> So, Judd, so Emilio and Judd would go out for a beer after work or hang out or whatever. But with this cast, they were all, you know, a little bit out of college in their late teens, early 20s, but they really bonded. So they had great use of that. They made great use of that rehearsal time. That gave them an opportunity to talk about their characters, ask questions. And then Nikki, like what John Hughes did, he would allow, you know, start blocking the scenes and getting ideas about how he was going to visualize it. So that was one suggestion I made as a producer. Let's have that rehearsal time to really get the, the team together. And uh, it really paid off for us. They really bonded. You know, one of the things that jumps out at me from this movie, and you mentioned heavier issues than than existed, or at least were talked about in the uh, in the Breakfast Club. But it strikes me that in an era where everybody's got a computer in their pocket, and where there's social media, and where there are big issues that are talked about more openly, I'm wondering if you think it's harder for kids today than it was when when we were growing up. <laughs> 
That's a great point and, and question you have there, Steve, because I think you're absolutely right. I think that some of the technology, the way we receive and get information every day, how we share it on social media and that becoming a whole you know, behemoth in itself. I think that's a great point. I think that maybe in some cases that might have people sort of hiding behind the technology in a sense, and it might make it more difficult. So I think that's a really great point and a question that you that you pose there. Because I think you're right. In some ways, it probably makes it more difficult because people can sort of hide behind, you know, that the likes and the this and the that of, of technology, what that provides for us. Because we all enjoy it, right? But I think it's also a faster world in many ways, in many respects. And so I think that uh, it's a very salient point you brought up. You know, it is. I think it is probably more challenging for people to really expose themselves and to say, you know, to express their vulnerabilities, let's say. Yeah, know? I mean, it's yeah. the line from the movie, hardest part of uh, of the class, learning to be themselves. Uh, which is which is one of the big takeaways from the movie. Yeah. I also feel like the unifying message of it, which is consistent with the original, is that we're more we're all more alike than we are different, you know. And I think that to make this film in this current age, it was really important to us to make it more multi-ethnic, to deal with these real issues like like we were addressed here. That's not like they, they didn't exist decades ago, but they weren't talked about, as you said, Steve. So I think it it created an opportunity to really kind of revisit this. It is new material. But I think what Nikki did very successfully is kind of takes the framework of what John created. And now we're going to, you know, take it to another level, hopefully. So we feel really good about it. There's great characters. There's great performances. There's also great humor in the film. So I'm grateful for how it all came together. Yeah, yeah watching it made me think, I'm so glad I grew up when I grew up, you know, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, because, you know, you know, you and I, I you know, you're you're in your what? You're in your 50s, right? You and your in, 50s? Yeah, 54. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I, I've got 11 years on you, but I, I grew up with slam books and I don't know if, uh, if you remember those. And that was kind of, you know, an anonymous book that people would write something about somebody and you didn't know who wrote it about you and you would feel horrible. But now it's, you know, it's, it's so, it's so, it's much more apparent when somebody has, a, has an issue with you or wants to make fun of you. It's not only do you see it, but the world sees it, which, you know, and even being a teacher, you know, um, having to deal with social media while you're trying to teach a class, you know, wow. that has got to be a nightmare. Yeah, no, that's a great point you got you brought up there. So absolutely. No, I think so. And I think because people have the tendency, like you're saying, to air their opinions and to voice their concerns or their issues or, or their, you know, sometimes nasty points of view. <laughs> um it makes it more of like, you know, the Wild West, the internet, certainly. And certainly what social media platforms have created. You're absolutely right. It was funny, guys, because I saw a meme recently. It was so telling. It was hilarious. It was a picture of the five of us from the original film, The Breakfast Club. And it said, if this movie, ironically, if this movie was remade today, no one would be talk to each other because they'd all be on their smartphones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy and proud to announce that we've, we've done this. We've pulled this off. And I think that I hope audiences will connect with it because I think it is relatable and accessible. And, uh, and I think in the ways that we made those adjustments, they were fitting and appropriate. So I, I hope people respond to it. And the best thing too, I feel is like that Nikki really got the humor that it's important to have these cathartic release moments where people can lighten up and, and laugh at themselves. So they ultimately get to that same place, which is, you know, will we be friends on Monday? But ultimately we're all dealing with issues. We're all vulnerable and we're all, you know, living in this human experience, you know? So uh, you were in one of the funniest movies of all time, uh, National Lampoon's <laughs> Vacation. 
uh, Chevy oh, Chase and Beverly, yeah. Beverly D'Angelo and Christy Brinkley and the, the Wagon Queen family truckster and Cousin Eddie, who I still yeah. quote all the time. I don't know why they call this stuff Hamburger Helper. It tastes fine all by itself. Uh, what, Love it, right? Talk, talk about that movie because you were, you were just a kid doing that and you sort of forged your bond with John Hughes in that movie, right? Well, here's what happened. It was an interesting story, Steve, because he actually wrote it. You know, John was a guy that lived in Chicago with his wife, Nancy. They're both no longer with us, sadly, but he was an ad guy. He wrote advertising, you know, commercial spots. And what happened was back in, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s, he started sending submissions in of short stories to National Lampoon Magazine, and they stuck. He became a beloved short story writer for Lampoon. So when they made vacation from his script, I actually did not meet John during the making of the film. But it became sort of like this destiny, you know, that we had and shared because I was this little kid and, and he saw me in that film, which he had penned, but he was not around on set when we mm. made the film. And back in the day, that was before green screen and blue screen and digital effects. So Who we directed the movie. Made, was that Harold, Harold Ramis directed? It was Harold Ramis. Uh, who's just a complete legend. Yeah. Right. Right, right. And so I didn't meet John until I auditioned for him for 16 Candles, and then I wound up making three pictures in a row with him. But if you include Vacation, Steve, I mean, it's really four of his films. So, you know, we were sort of bound to, to work together. And, you know, he was just, an, I couldn't have asked for a greater mentor or friend. He was just a great guy. He was in his shoes always. He was down on the level. He was very um, supportive and encouraging. And what he did for me, he did for a lot of us. By that, I mean, we would always work and shoot the scenes as written. But then we would improv and try things. And if somebody came up with something that he thought was appropriate, we would try that. So he really had that great spirit of collaboration, which I think was one of his other great gifts in addition to writing and directing. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think it was about him? I mean, he was really the quintessential uh, director, writer of, of coming of age films. I mean, he just nailed it. What, what do you think? What was it about him? That's a great question, Sue. I think from my experience, what I recall is that he had two sisters that he wasn't particularly connected to, all, all due respect to his sisters. So he was kind of like the middle child and was a big fan of music. He loved the Beatles. He loved John Lennon. There's actually a scene in The Breakfast Club between John Capitalist and Paul Gleason where they're talking about, well, who's your hero? Who'd you want to be? So I can tell you guys both that that was, that was from John. He really loved John Lennon and the Beatles. Mm. So he was a guy that was always staying inspired. He always wrote to music. He would take us out to see blues acts and blues, you know, go to blues clubs and stuff when Molly and I were working with him on 16 Candles. So I just think he had a great ear as a writer. He was a natural, you know, and he would write scripts. Like when we were doing The Breakfast Club, one day he came in after a full day's shoot. And the next day he was like, I went home last night and I started writing the script for Weird Science and I wrote 30 pages of it. Hmm. So literally after a day of shooting, 12 hours on The Breakfast Club, he went home and wrote the first act of Weird Science. So... He was amazing. He had incredible output, an incredible ear for dialogue and for people, but also the humor. And that I think was the touchstone of his work. He always got to you by making you laugh and I think kind of humanizing these characters. And one of the things that I've learned over the years is that I think he, there is a sort of paradigm to his work, which is everybody kind of winds up a little better off than they started. And that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a hopeful idea. I think that's cool, even in the context of comedies. And he was great at uh, sort of blending all of those things into his projects. So you were in uh, a masterpiece, uh, Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands, which I, oh. I'm sure that pitched really easy. It's a guy who's got scissors <laughs> for hands and he, he'll turn a bush into a dinosaur yeah. and all that stuff. But yeah. it, it just is, 
it's just magical. Uh, did you know that when the movie was being shot? What what was it like with Burton? All that. Well, you know what? It's it's so interesting. There there are a handful of directors that I honestly could say, uh, truthfully, can be called geniuses, and I think John was one of them. Certainly, Tim Burton was. Chris Nolan, I went on to work with and for on The Dark Knight. But I think with Tim Burton, it was a very interesting thing here, and it took me a long time to figure this out, but go with me on this. Okay. He grew up in Burbank, so he was a student of animation. So when you watch Scissorhands, I've had a long time to think about that. I made the picture back in 1990. I think it's kind of like a combination of like Pinocchio and Romeo and Juliet or something. You know, it's his modern day fairy tale. He's an incredible artist. And I remember going into his production office and again, prolific. He had all the drawings of what would become Nightmare Before Christmas, that animated oh, film, wow. right? Claymation. He was already working on that, but he has this kind of Walt Disney type of mind where he started out as an animator, but is a brilliant filmmaker. He's one of those rare filmmakers that when you see his films, they have a signature. They have such a, a look to them and they're beautiful. So it was a real honor to work for him. And we shot that in Tampa all those years back, man. It was, hmm. it was wild. But yeah, modern day fairy tale for sure. And I was, I was excited to work for him. You know, he was a great, great filmmaker. So last night, um, prepping for the interview, I watched an episode of The Dead Zone that you directed, that you starred and directed in. And it was The Cold Hard Truth. Um, I did stand up for, for many, many years. So I know Richard Lewis. And, and what, what an incredible episode. And, um, and and speaking of working with all of these amazing directors, um, is there anything that you've taken from your experience as an actor working with these guys that you incorporated into directing when you started directing? But this this episode in particular was just phenomenal. Thank you so much, Sue. I'm really glad. Yeah, Richard, I love. I, I grew up loving him. I've always loved Richard. And in that particular episode years back when I did The Dead Zone, we cast him as a sort of Howard Stern-like shock jock, you know. And it was just perfect timing. And he had us laughing our asses off on the set. He was so funny. And he was great in that. Um, to your question, yeah, I've garnered a lot from different directors. You know, a lot of it, like John, I learned the value of rehearsal. Uh, someone like Tim or even Chris Nolan, they're visionary. So it's really about the shot selection and getting as much coverage as you can, which is basically shots to cut to and from. You know, there's a fair analogy with comic books, like movies are like comic books, right? So you're telling a story in pictures. So when it comes to the actual pragmatic work of directing, you really want to get as much coverage and shots as possible. So to your question, yes, I've learned a lot from those great ones. And I've also learned a lot from great TV directors that I worked with that have the same challenge and task of creating something that's fun and interesting and, and funny, but they're on a much more kind of crunched schedule. So I've, I've definitely learned great lessons from the, the top filmmakers as well as great TV directors that taught me a lot as well about economy of usage of time and, and getting everything that you need to get. So I have great respect for all those people. And I really did learn a lot from all of them. Yeah. What, what I love so much is when you hear Richard's voice, you don't <laughs> see him and, and you have a close up of his mouth at the microphone. And then you have a cutaway where you just see his Converse sneakers, you know, and you kind of get a little bit of an idea of this guy without really seeing anything because he was a Howard Stern-esque type of jock, jock, but he was so dark, so dark. He was so funny. He was one of those great guests and watching the late night shows when we were growing up. He was someone you looked forward to seeing, you know, like Don Rickles, you know, you just yeah. knew you were going to laugh. See Richard, you know what I mean? And he was wonderful. I really love the guy. And we wound up 
you know, staying in contact and he, he was just great to work with. And, and again, because he was one of my sort of comedy heroes, I loved having him on board. So uh, he was a little overwhelmed by all the dialogue, but we got through it. And, uh, and yeah, thanks for noticing that. We wanted to do kind of a slow reveal that was reminiscent of, you know, talk radio, that film years ago, or even the Warriors, you know, remember that movie in the seventies? Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Little technique and coverage, you know, kind of ways to shoot a scene. So thank you for acknowledging this. Yeah. So uh, this is from your Wikipedia page. So consider the source. Oh. source. Uh, <laughs> according to your Wikipedia page, you were going to play the Matthew Modine role in Stanley Kubrick's full metal jacket but couldn't make a deal somehow to start. T- tell me the, the story of Full Metal Jacket. Well, yeah, you know, I was approached by the late and truly great Stanley Kubrick. And I remember getting a call while I was doing Word Science back in 1985. Uh, first, I got a call that there was interest in me joining the cast and, and being in this Vietnam epic that he was going to do. And then a day or two later, I get a call from my agent, uh, a gentleman named Marty Bauer, who was awesome. He was a great agent, a great guy. And said that Stanley Kubrick wanted to talk to me. So this is like, can you imagine, guys? It's like the Wizard of Oz has been calling you, right? So (laughs) I was freaked out. I got up on a, 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 the call was scheduled like 9 a.m. I was up at like 7 a.m. I was staying at the Sheridan premiere out here in Hollywood. And I remember just pacing in my room. I'm like this nervous kid going, oh my God, Stanley Kubrick's going to call me. So, you know, what unfurled was a really interesting conversation. He talked about all kinds of things. His favorite filmmakers, the great Eisenstein from Russia, um, you know, uh, who else do you love? Chaplin. He was a big mm-hmm. fan of Chaplin. Um, so what happened was, unfortunately, it didn't work out. It, you know, it became a, like an eighth month negotiation, believe it or not. And it was pretty intense. And I had to go to his lawyer's house and read a numbered script. This was before scripts were watermarked back in the day. You know? Wow. <laughs> so it was quite an, an experience. And unfortunately, it, it did not work out. But I can, I look back and if I have anything approaching a regret, it would probably be that. But you know what, whether it's that or, or Ferris Bueller, you have to wish people well. So I thought Matthew Broderick was great and Ferris Bueller. And I thought Matt Modine did a great job. It's a funny sort of little uh, follow-up story to that. I, I wound up running into Matthew Modine around the time, right before the film came out. And I was in New York City. And he spotted me. We started talking. And I said, uh, by the way, how long did you wind up shooting on Full Metal Jacket? Are you ready? He goes, 54 weeks. Whoa. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> So to say that Mr. Kubrick was, uh, was, uh, you know, detail oriented would be an understatement. He was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. So he shot for a year on the film, which is incredible in itself. Well, you know, I guess in, in, in many people's careers, you know, there were those, those roles that either got away or roles that you decided not to do. The, I read the reason why you decided not to do Ferris Bueller and, um, what was the other one? Was it, I don't think it was. Pretty in pink, pretty in pink. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty in pink, pretty in pink was because you didn't want to be typecast as a nerd. And I was thinking to myself, wow, you were very young. And I thought, wow, what a ballsy thing to discover, you know, just, just a move, you know, and so introspective at, at a young age to say to yourself, you know what? I'm looking at the big picture here and I, and I don't want to just be seen as this type of role in, in this type of role. I want to do other things. Thank you, Sue. Well, you know, to be very honest, and I will be candid with you both about it. I mean, Pretty in Pink felt like the 16 Candles all over again. It was pretty much a very similar story. You know, the nerdy kid and the guy that she's fawning over and she was the girl from the wrong side of the tracks, this kind of paradigm structure, you know, and I thought that was cool and everything. 
But Ferris Bueller actually was written for me. So it was a very challenging thing because I was also working at the time. So it wasn't like a blunt no. It was a scheduling issue. And then ultimately, it didn't work out, unfortunately. But you know what? Like I said, I've learned over time. You have to wish everyone well and wish success for everybody. So, you know, the truth is that came out and it wound up being a bigger hit than the first three films that I did with John. Ferris Bueller was a big hit. So and I thought Broderick was great in it. Um, and Modine was great in Full Metal Jacket. So, you know, it's interesting stories. And, and I always cherish that, that I even had conversations with Stanley Kubrick. I wound up having two conversations with him. So, you know, even in that process, I was learning and, and it was incredible. I mean, he gave me the greatest compliment of my entire career when he called me to do Full Metal Jacket. He told me he had screened 16 Candles three times. And, and he told me I was his favorite actor since he saw Nicholson and Easy Rider. And I was wow. like, okay, mind blown, mic drop. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like a pubescent kid, you know, I was flipped out. So just even having that interaction, the opportunity to speak with such a great filmmaker um, was very interesting. You know? Yeah. You know, when Sue and I were on, we were doing mornings in New York and the movie eyes wide shut came out. And uh, to me, such a great movie, my recollection, Sue, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that we debated this movie openly and you were not in the eyes wide shut camp. Um, and I defended it relentlessly and ultimately, and I think Kubrick passed away, and I got a letter from his brother thanking me for his uh, for supporting Eyes Wide Shut, which I think has stood the test of time. And and to slap Sue for her opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly, you guys are Siskel and Ebert on alternate days. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So in the middle of all this, you joined the cast of Saturday Night Live. You were only 17 years old. We've talked to so many former cast members and writers, uh, challenging and competitive and really hard in there. What was it like to jump in? And then what was your Saturday Night Live experience like? Well, I can tell you that you definitely you have spoken to a number of the cast members. Look, it's a creative institution. I love it. But you're absolutely right. It was very competitive. It was very kind of cutthroat. I mean, to be very honest, you know, a lot of it was kind of finding your way. And so what Lauren did that first season after I brought Downey to him and Downey got cast is that when we went to work, it was like we're all at 30 Rock. It was not unlike 30 Rock. We all had our little cubicles and stuff. But one of the things that Lauren did, which I thought was brilliant, is he would assign us to writers. And he would say, go spend time with, uh, you know, the guy who played Father Guido Sarducci, Don yeah. uh, Novello. Or go work with some of these great writers that have been there since the 70s. So he really makes it like a, a training ground. It's like the minor leagues for comedy. But I have to say, there have been so many great men and great women on that show. And it's become such an institution. So, again... I didn't have any breakout characters. It was a rough transitional season back in the 11th season. And here we are now, 45 years later. I mean, it's in its 45th or whatever it is season. Yeah, you know? So yeah. it's amazing. It was an amazing experience. And even though I didn't break out from it, I was honored to have the opportunity to work for Lauren and NBC. And, you know, I was just a skinny, goofy kid from New York that I was home watching Eddie Murphy the year or two before that. So yeah. for me, it was like mind blowing because I... I remember I used to have to ask my mother to stay up in the 70s so I could watch it because I watched it from the 70s on, you know. But by the time the 80s came around, I loved all those casts. I was a huge, and still am, huge Eddie Murphy fan, Billy Crystal, Chris Guest. And again, a, a particular salute to all the great women. There have been so many great women that have been a part of the show, great female yeah. comics. So it's a really an a, a incredible melting pot and a great... Uh, you know, incubator of great talent. And so, as we all know now, I mean, it's an institution. It's incredible. So I look back fondly, even though it was a challenging season. You know. Did you, did you do sketch stuff um, when you were younger? 
I, no, I didn't. That was my first experience. And typically, as you know, Sue, most people coming from that, they, you know, they, they wind up doing being stand-up comics or they're at Second City or the Groundlings and they make that leap and get an audition for Lorne. It was a very rare instance in my career because I had done these comedies with John and I was already working in film, even though I was a little kid, you know, so I was very blessed, very fortunate. And I remember after accepting the job, I, I was also a New Yorker on top of it. I grew up in New York City. So I remember just walking around the city like stunned. I was like in a state of shock for two or three months because I'm like, wow, I'm going to be a part of this, you know, and it was... As I said, I was a huge fan always, even since I was a little kid. So you played Microsoft founder Bill Gates in uh, Pirates of Silicon Valley, and you you called it the role of a lifetime. Um, and part of you did, I, you know, I read this, part of what you did was sort of recreate the physical appearance and stature of Gates. Uh, describe that process as you got ready to play this role. Thank you. I'd be happy to. So, uh, you know, I worked with a producer named Nick Lombardo and a great Canadian director named Martin Burke, and they were kind enough to give me the opportunity. I went into that audition, guys. I literally had the, uh, the glasses. My manager at the time, Steve Owens, gave me these glasses. I did the comb over part, and I tried to get to that. Bill Gates almost had, well, especially when he was younger, he had that almost like Kermit the Frog type of voice. <laughs> so what happens is, now this is a funny story. I get hired. I'm honored. This is mind-blowing. I'm playing this great business person, tycoon. I read everything I could. I read all the biographies on Gates. I read his autobiography. I read everything I could. But they hired a great acting coach for me, a guy named Steve Bridgewater, who has worked with Depp and Brad Pitt and a lot of great actors. He himself is also a screenwriter and a director. So Steve and I worked for six weeks together. And I'll tell you a quick story, which is the funniest thing about my training and prep for this, uh, Steve. Steve Bridgewater sits me down our first session. And he breaks out a legal pad and he goes, okay, we're going to set a list of goals. He said, what are your goals for this film? The first one, he goes, do you want people to see you or Bill Gates? I said, Bill Gates. I want them to see him. And the second thing I said, remember asking, I said, well, I'd love the movie to be nominated for some Emmys. It wound up being nominated for some Emmys. But the funniest thing that he did was he, he reaches into his knapsack and he said, I brought this from home. My wife was cracking up too. He pulls out a tampon that he took from his wife's <laughs> closet in the bathroom <laughs> and he opened it up and cut up the inner part of the tampon, which as we know is cotton, not to be gross here. Sorry. Yeah. So basically he cut it up and he said, look, I want you to stick a piece of this in your nose. And by doing that, that kind of helped kickstart the whole Maze League. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Bill Gates voice. So believe it or not, during the making of that film, there were points where I had a piece of tampon in my nose. While I was making the film. <laughs> but he was a great acting coach. And what he really helped me do is define goals for myself. And so that was an amazing experience working with Steve Bridgewater, who's a great acting coach. And he actually was there with me on, on location. So I think I got to be a little annoying to some of the other actors because I was reading things and handing them information about the characters they were playing because I got obsessed, you know. And then between takes, I would listen to his voice on tape. So I'd walk around with a Walkman back in the day. Wow. And I'd be listening to Gates to kind of get that timber and, the, you know, the tone of his voice. So, you know, it was a, it was a fair amount of prep, including tampons. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, kind of reminds me of um, Marlon Brando in The Godfather. He Didn't he put like cotton or something in, in his mouth? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Looked a lot cooler than I. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So, last thing, I we don't want to keep you all day. Last thing for you. Uh, when you hear the term "brat pack," all these years later, what does it make you think of? I kind of a cheap shot from the magazine that posted that article because I felt what happened was it was a bit of a ploy. He got all those guys together. And again, I was at the young end of that generation, mm -hmm. so I was not included. I wasn't even at the the dinner meeting that they had, but. 
you know, everybody started getting a little liquored up and they started running their mouths a little bit. And I, and I think that unfortunately they capitalized on that at that time. And it was kind of an expose in a way, because I think it was not really fair to those guys. And I think it was like Emilio and Judd and Rob Lowe and some of these guys. So I felt it was kind of a cheap shot. Like the Rat Pack is a great thing, right? Those are legends. And that's a, that's a term of, of endearment. Yeah. But the Brad Pack, kind of, yeah, it just became like a cover story for the magazine that doesn't have to be named, you know. But ultimately, it became a way to sort of identify a generation of actors. And maybe that wasn't fair to them, but ultimately, it was just a slogan, you know. So yeah. I don't really, yeah. I don't take it to heart too much, but that's how I look. Well, listen, the, uh, the movie is the class. It is uh, in theaters and on VOD. It is fantastic. Uh, strongly recommend it. Uh, great work. Thank you so much for coming on, Anthony. Really appreciate it, man. Likewise, Steve and Sue, thank you both. It was great spending time with you guys. And there is Anthony Michael Hall, who legitimately, I guess he's a little bit younger than me, but I did grow up on those John Hughes movies. And I remember seeing The Breakfast Club. I was actually at Bowling Green State University when I saw it, saw it with my friend Brett McVeigh, talked about it for hours afterwards, because it was kind of revolutionary at the time. It was looking at a school and saying, no, there's this group and there's that group and there's this clique. And, and sort of it, it felt much more like my high school experience than other representations of high school that I had seen. Oh yeah, absolutely. It totally reminded me of my growing up, even though it was a generation before mine, uh, after mine. Um, I tell you, you know, when it's so, there's something so weird about seeing uh, an actor who you have watched since he's a little kid. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but, He's in his 50s. Yeah, it's it's yeah. like so hard to separate sometimes. Like when we interviewed uh, Tyler James Williams from um, Everybody Hates Chris, you know, he was so little. And then it's like he's a man now. He's got yes. a deep voice and he shaves. <laughs> it's just it's just jarring. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, that was great. Hey, listen, I, I want to make sure everybody knows that uh, it means a lot to us when you rate and review the podcast. So we always say subscribe to the podcast, please, if you haven't yet, on Apple, Spotify, and at stevemason.com. Subscribe to the podcast and then leave us a rating and a review. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that helps us uh, build the show and to continue to, uh, to grow everything. Uh, Sue, great seeing you. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. <laughs>